Welcome to Arj's Investment Podcast. And in this episode, we're going to get a little bit more technical. So some industry knowledge is going to be extremely helpful, but it's also going to be worth it because my guest is Anthony Bolton. Anthony spent 28 years at Fidelity running their special situations fund. If you'd invested £1,000 when he launched the fund, you would have made over 100 times your money. He compounded a return of 19.5%. He was without doubt the most successful fund manager of his generation. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Roger. So what I'd like to do is to start off by asking you a question about how would you explain the strategy that you employed rather than just saying a value, a value style that, that yes. covers a whole multitude of, of, of things. It does cover a, a, a wide range and, and, and there were different types of what I call value in it. I, th- I think this is more describing it later as I thought about it. I may not have described it that way but at the time, but the thing that's always fascinated me about the stock market that makes it very different from private equity investment is that you have the fashions of the stock market, the sentiment of the stock market that has this extra layer. So it's about what things are worth and what their profitability and the future outlook. But the stock market exaggerates that at times, either way, on the upside or on the downside. And it was that aspect, I think, of, of, of the stock market that particularly fascinated me. And so at heart, I wanted to use that element to bet against that element of it, that when things were over-depressed, that attracted me to them and vice versa. When they were very popular, that tended to be a negative in, in, in my view. And that was at the heart of my investment approach. So I love to look at things other people weren't looking at. And and how far ahead does the stock market the stock market look? And and how far ahead do you do you, do you think an investor needs to look to be ahead of the stock market? I always sort of felt one to two years was my sort of time scale of looking things. And I, I say I think to our managers today with so much focus on the short term I think actually if you're looking one to two years, that space is less crowded and so you've got a a bit of a competitive advantage. But if there was something I liked and I was really sure about it and I felt it wasn't risky so I I could be patient, I I would be prepared to wait. So I had some stocks that I held for a number of years and... You know, in some cases, it had to be a number of years before my my thesis eventually came, came right. right. Yeah. For the future generations, you know, who who maybe aspire to be contrarian or value investors, which means life's going to be difficult uh, much of the time, whilst you wait for those opportunities to 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 come to fruition. What are the characteristics that you think a contrarian investor um, is is suited to having? Yes, I, I, I mean, I think some some of these are internal to you, or a lot of it is internal to you. I think unemotional is is important if you're going to be the sort of investor that that I was. I think 
an open mind it if if you're too dogmatic about things it i i always talk about conviction investments about conviction getting conviction behind your ideas if if you don't have conviction or your conviction wavers from week to week you won't make a good investor but having so much conviction that you never change your mind is also extremely dangerous so it it it's it's this temperament um unemotional but being willing to change as the circumstances an o- o- open mind i i think is is important um so that that's some of it the idea of being what you highlighted being a conviction investor yeah it sounds to me as though actually by doing the work and seeing the companies on a regular basis that enables you to to keep the conviction without being hubristic I think I think that that's right, and 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 also the you know the heart of my style. I like to play in the areas that I thought were less competitive. So, you know, thousands of investors try and second guess what the Fed is going to do. How am I going to have a competitive advantage against them in doing that? But if I saw a company, and may, and particularly in medium and smaller companies, and in the early days, European companies that weren't very exposed to investors, by doing the work, I felt I could get to a position um, that knew more. So many active fund managers fail to outperform the their indexes, the FTSE 100 index that they, that they, they set out to outperform or the FTSE All Share Index. They, they fail to outperform it. What is it that a that a, an active fund manager has to do to outperform their index, and why is it that so many fail to do it? Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that that is a great question. Um, I, you, one of my competitors said this: "This is it's simple, but not easy." <laughs> um, wrote a book about it. That was the title. And that's at the heart of it. It's it's it it it's very simple, the the principles of investment. But doing it is not easy, and part of that is is you understanding you and and your strengths and weaknesses, and, and part of it is 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 the outside world. I think there is also a cyclical element to active. I mean, active passive sort of comes into this somewhat debate. Why so many? active managers underperform. I, I think in a pro-growth environment, pro-growth favours passive because it favours the bigger companies, which was particularly obviously in the American index, they're very dominant in the American index. I, I think we're in a period now where active is going to find the tide, having had the tide against them, the tide is going to be with them for the next five to 10 years. So I think it will be better for the average active fund manager. Um, but but having such an environment where, um, you know, passive was doing so, so, so well has, has hurt. And that's, that's why, you know, the ratio of active managers that outperform over time varies and it got down to a very low level. I don't think that is the norm. We've had this extraordinary period of, of pretty much zero interest rates. Yes, um, for the, since two thousand and 
nine. Yeah. Um, and and suddenly, uh, uh, we've had interest rate hikes as a result of inflation now getting embedded into the system, both in the US and in Europe. Yeah. Is is that what changes the world for investors, or is that too simplistic? I I think that would definitely be one of the factors. I think in in this very low interest rate environment, the, there's a big premium on growth. On growth, when growth is difficult, I I I think if you you know most of the evidence supports that in an in higher inflation environment that that generally is better for for value investors mm. i you know i i was always very i mean jeremy grantham always said he thought in the long run you got two percent per annum more from value than than growth that obviously has not happened in the last 10 or probably 20 years but i don't see why in the very long run that shouldn't work that shouldn't work can we just change subject a little yeah. bit and move on to bubbles yes because um uh, obviously there's nothing inside a bubble when bubbles burst that they're empty and you have lived through uh some interesting times one of which was the the tmt bubble the, te- yeah. the technology yeah. media yeah. and, and, and yeah. telecoms stocks which i think in 2000 represented about 40 percent of the FTSE 100 index I yeah. could be wrong, but it was something like that. Um, and you had to you had to manage money at a time when you had that incredible headwind to 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 compete against. And yet somehow you didn't lose your job. You 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 you, you know you you kept doing what you did best. And uh, I think the management uh, in Boston did question you once about whether you were convinced that your strategy was robust enough. Did they give you the time? And secondly, yeah. um, what were the what were the factors that that gave you the confidence that 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 bubble was about to burst? I mean, there were some warning signs. Um, people. It was interesting. It was all about relative valuations, not absolute valuations. Mm. And I think that that's a, a warning sign when, you know, it was only this company is cheaper than that company. It's the fact that both of them were terribly expensive was not being debated. And then there were sort of some sort of more left field signs. I mean, Tony Dye, who was the, the guru of value invested, I think was sacked just just before the bubble burst uh the analysts you know the the tmt analyst i mean this was in a day when most of us dressed in suits with ties and they would turn up you know in the most scruffy trainers and 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 it was sort of representative at that stage of a sort of arrogant you know why should i do whatever when i'm i'm too too good and too great to do that and you sort of know the bubble is pretty near to bursting when that happens oh my god and then it did yeah. can, can we cast our minds back yeah. to that that really because I, I, I was certainly in the, in the first 25 years of yeah. running your fund there were only seven years 
only seven years, you underperform the market. Um, and, and you simply, it is impossible to have, to have a, a fantastic long-term track record without, yes. without periods of, of, of life being difficult. Um, I get, get to ask you the quick question, um, fixing on one particular stock, which yes. is Polypec. Yes. Yeah. And I might've got the time horizon slightly wrong, but I suspect it was sort of around that time. Um, when Polypec had become a FTSE 100 stock, I think it was a, um, uh, uh, was it a, was it a textile? It was a textile company. Textile to company with, to, yeah. to start off with. Yeah. And, and then, and then it, I think, then it went bust with about 1.3 billion of, 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 of debts. Yeah. Obviously corporate governance is very different yes. now to yes. what it was then, but, but, how did they get away with it? What what was it that okay. caught investors out? Yeah. I think the thing that we should have paid more attention to was their mar their margins were much higher in comparable businesses than other people. Azul Nadir had a story for that um, to do with the fact that they were based in Turkey or Cyprus and they had certain, they could cut out middlemen and they were supplying it. It's textiles. It was also fruit and stuff. It was I fruit, think. yes. And then he became sort of a conglomerate and bought a whole lot of other stuff, hotels and property and whatever. He was, Asun Nadir was the most, was the best liar I think I've ever come across in this business. I was going to put that in my book and the publisher said, Anthony, you can't say that, but I'm happy <laughs> to say it to you, Algie. Um, I mean, I've met a few liars, and and a few of the quite a few of them were in China, which we can talk about if you want to. But um, he he was very convincing. So, uh, and you know, most of the time, particularly in developed markets, I I think you know you give management the benefit of the doubt and believe what they say is is it true and most of the time you'll be all right but i should have paid more attention to to the relative margins when he started i think when he started to to become this huge conglomerate and build all that debt um i think i then got out of the position from memory um, but it was it was a big holding at one stage, and it was for a long time very lowly valued, and that's what attracted me mm. to it. And then on 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 the other hand, you know, you, 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 well, firstly, you can't run money the way that you ran money without having the odd one that goes wrong. Yeah. But you also had some incredible successes, and one of the best ones I read in your book was 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 Mersey Docks. Yes. Um, and, and the question I've got here was to, to give our listeners a, 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 a bit of a, um, but a bit of background here. The, the, this stock made is a 10 bagger for investors. You made yes. 10 times that, their the, the money on the stock. H how is it that as a contrarian value investor, you were able to hold your nerve and not sell too early? Because one of the great skills in life is being able to water the flowers and 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 rather than the weeds. Yes. Uh, and that's obviously something which you're very good at. I think it, it comes, you have to keep on checking the thesis, checking the story. You know, is is are the reasons that I first got attracted to this still the case today? That was an extremely undervalued stock because it was looked at one way 
And then if you looked at it in a different way, so it was looked at, uh, you know, a ports company that seemed to have quite an uninteresting business that had labor problems, labor union problems, was having to lay off labor that was quite expensive, but the government was paying for part of that. There was a debate about what percentage of the the future layoffs the, gov the government would pay, how much would the company would pay. And and to some extent, my view was was um, I was taking a view on that and, and the government set a precedent of paying for that. But hidden under it was a property company where they owned all this land in the ports in, in, in Liverpool, which I thought was very valuable. And that was totally undiscovered by investors or, or unappreciated or just ignored by other investors. And as it started to, you know, to, to be discovered and people realised that, that, that the upside was very considerable. Can we move on and talk about uh, free cash flow yields, strength of balance sheets, yes. et cetera? Was that something... Uh, that maybe in the second half of your of your career, you you put more focus on. I, I th I think in the you know as as you said we all we all get losers as well as winners and what you want to try and you know is your increase your batting average. So, I think looking at your losers and and seeing what the lessons you can learn from your losers is is very important to do. Don't let it get to you. I think, you know, that, that I, I've seen some managers, particularly they're going through a bad patch and they have a number of, 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 of losers and they get very depressed and it affects their confidence. So you've got to stand aside from that. So when I looked at my losers over time, I found particularly weak balance sheets was a very common component of it. And, you know, the, the, having debt gears up the returns for equity shareholders, but it gears it up both ways, on the upside and the downside. And if the, if the economy deteriorates in general or if the um, fundamentals for that company deteriorate, you're going to lose the most money in a, in a geared company. So I think a knowledge of the balance sheet is really important to knowing how risky the equity in, in that company is. And I, th I think that's one of the single most important lessons that I would pass on to investors. And there was a time when many analysts only looked at the P&L and didn't really consider the balance sheet at all. I think that's changed now, but, but certainly going back in time. And would that even... Would that even um, uh be appropriate for smaller smaller companies because you know you were very good at picking smaller companies and even, even more so i yeah. think with smaller company because you know the the banks don't want to put a big company under but they're more prepared to put a small company <laughs> under if, if if it goes wrong so i i i think and then you know and it's debt but it's also hidden debt like pension liabilities and stuff like that and I'm not saying never invest in those companies, but but only invest with your eyes open. The converse of that, companies that had net cash, I loved. And 
I was willing, I was talk, we were talking about timeframes earlier. If, you know, if something had a really strong balance sheet and perhaps had net cash that covered part of the market capitalization, I would be willing, I'd be much more prepared to wait on those because I knew, you know, they were safe and they, they, they wouldn't let me down. I mean, they may, they may not perform on the upside, but hopefully they were unlikely to hurt me on the downside. Crudely, would, would two-thirds of the return possibly have come from smaller mid-cap companies rather than large caps? Uh, I, d- I don't know how much, but it, it was a very big part of my... Total return. Total return. And, and, and it changed, the mixture changed, you know, obviously as the, fund, as the funds grew, I, I, I had to have more holdings and I had to go more up the market cap scale. Yeah. And, and, and over the years, not that you were ever a macro investor at all, yeah. you, you did call the market on, on a handful of occasions yes. very accurately. Did you understand the, the impact of QE when it happened? QE, I hadn't focused on perhaps as much as anyone, but one sort of new, I think the, the, the thing that I would emphasize, I love to look at long-term charts. I think the most dangerous thing you can do, or one of the dangerous things that people do in this business is only look at the last five years or the last 10 years and say, you know, this stock looks terribly cheap to what it has over 10 years. I said, you've got to look over a couple of market cycles, so 25 years or even 50 years if you can get it. I felt much more comfortable at looking at that. And if anyone who looked at that would have realized that this period of QE was the exception rather than the rule. And I think that the lesson is that you just, if if you knew that, you knew it wasn't going to last forever, then that would help you, I think, in how you constructed a portfolio. Charts is a very important subject because a, a, a lot of people um, think that looking at charts is, 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 an, is an irrelevance. Which charts meant the most to you? I mean, you, you've given us a, yes, an indication yeah, there. Yeah. Well, I think the two, two aspects of charts, I, I, I found with a lot of data, it was very useful to look at it in a chart format and, and to look at these long-term charts. And, and when I was very interested in the sentiment of the market, looking at put-call ratios and percent of investment advisory services bullish and insider purchases and all, all the stuff that indicated when you're trying to measure sentiment and how overdone something is or whether it's underdone, that's very important. The, the other, though, key way I used charts was really as a sort of confirming factor. If, if the chart, and often, you know, this was sort of relative strength, relative momentum or something, confirmed... It, it was perhaps the opposite. When I held something and I liked it and the tart seemed to be, de- be deteriorating, that made me look twice at it. So I used it as a sort of confirming or non-confirming factor. And I would go, you know, if it wasn't confirming, I'd say to the analyst, well, what, what are we missing? You know, are we missing something here? Is, is the fact, what are the bears of this stock saying? And, and knowing the counter view is really important in investment because I think part of having a, a bullish view on something is knowing the counter view and knowing why you think the counter view is wrong. 
But and it I wouldn't sell something just because of that, but it would be a factor. The the other aspect, it was positioning. How how big a position you had in something. And if the chart started to deviate from what our fundamental view was, it might persuade me, it, it made me relook at the strength of my conviction, but it might also persuade me that I, I should have a less big position in it. So it was a confirming tool for position yes. sizing. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, you obviously use the fidelity analysts uh, an awful lot. Yes. Um, what are the sources of of um, of idea generation? Did you have? Did you use? Did you use brokers a lot? I liked a very wide net. So yes, I did use brokers, and I liked, you know, from a wide range of types of brokers. You know, big brokers who covered the waterfront, specialist brokers you know, brokers who only followed the financial sector or something, special, people with specialist knowledge, I really. Then, particularly when the funds started to grow bigger, I was interested in trying to find sources of information that other people weren't using so much. Sorry, just coming back, I, I like lots of ideas. I, I, I felt, you know, if I had all these ideas coming in from all these different brokers, from our in-house analysts, the more ideas you had, the more chance of of of, of um, filtering it down to get the best uh, ideas out of it. But I also wanted to use other things, so we started to use um, expert networks, uh, business intelligence, market research to sort of, if they were consumer-facing businesses, to sort of confirm or conflict with our view. Um, meeting private companies in the same fields as the public companies, that was a very fruitful thing to do because they could often be more open about, um, you know, their competitors. So I, I always said to our analysts, you've got to, you've got to keep digging and you've got to cut keep thinking about are the things I can do that not everyone else is doing to to help confirm my thesis or or not. So it sounds to me as that when you were making your buy or sell decisions, or particularly your buy decisions, that there wasn't just one simple way of 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 helping you make it a quick and easy decision of yeah. whether or not to buy the stock today or, or tomorrow. But there are a, a multiple of, of factors. That's certainly the case. So I looked at a whole range of factors and at different times some might be more important than others. And I'd look at things, and I, I mentioned already shareholder list. I think looking at who already shareholders in that company carries information. If I, there were funds that I rated, if, if they were already on the list, I knew I wasn't the first to have discovered that stock. But if they weren't on the list, I thought to myself, and there were very few of them, you know, Anthony, you know, you're one of the first to be in this and hopefully others will come into it later. So, yes, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of factors. And, and what, what, were the, what were the red flags for you? Were there any red flags? Red flags. There were more, there were businesses or areas that I was less in, interested in. I mean, capital intensity was, was a negative for, 
for me. Um, lack of assets could have been, but you know, if you could have asset backing as well, that that was that was useful to have. Um, people who were not consistent in what they told us, you know, that that was one of the big uses of the bit. Very difficult at least I found very difficult in one meeting to sum up the management of a company. But the re-meeting I found really valuable in, in getting to know them. We did um, something else we, we used to do. If, if, a, if a new chief executive joined a company from, often they came from another listed company and then you knew them, but sometimes they came from the private businesses. or And we used to do sort of, check them out with people they worked with before to, to find out their characteristics. I found management, a lot of them, you know, strategic, financial, operational, the blend of those three. If someone was more sort of strategic and less operational, it was useful to know that and, and vice versa. And, 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 so, and that you could only build up with sort of time or doing this background research. And, and moving on to portfolio construction. Yes. Um, uh, based upon your experiences, um, what advice do you give to your uh, fund managers at, at, at Fidelity and to budding fund managers of yes. tomorrow about portfolio construction? Well, the way I did it was incremental. So generally I didn't immediately go and buy a, a big position in something or vice versa. Occasionally on the negative side, something happened that completely negated the, the thesis. And then I would just have to say we were wrong, sell, sell, sell it all. But that, that was the exception rather than the rule. Generally, my conviction was either in the process of building over time, more information, new meetings with the management, uh, some extra bit of digging or research that came in, always reducing the value, you know, is now more fully valued. And um, I used to start with uh, half a percent of the fund in, 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 in a stock. As the funds became very big, I had to reduce that to a quarter of a percent of the fund. In How 20, big did the fund get? Two and a half billion? Um Pre well, the special situations pre the split was was bigger than that. I mean, it was by far the biggest. It, I think, at one stage, it, it was by far the biggest. But the real thing was it, it was you know four or five times bigger than the next biggest fund. So it was sort of way out there on the scale. And and were there any sectors, or are there still any sectors which you tend? you've tended to avoid because they're in the too difficult camp? Um, too difficult, I would say. I mean, insurance was always difficult. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I wasn't naturally a new technology buyer, but how, how do you decide with a technology company that, you know, that they've got something unique that, that other people haven't got. I didn't like capital intensive businesses. I didn't like businesses where some key factors that affect their performance is outside their control. 
So what do I mean by that? Something, a business that's very exposed to exchange rates, for instance, um, particularly if they had narrow margins, where, you know, a 5% move in the exchange rate. Swing it one way or the other. Yeah, and they can hedge in the short term, but, you know, in the long term, <coughs> excuse me, they, they, the business, they may have no business if, if it's a move B. So I preferred businesses that could control their destiny. And um, we did touch on China a little bit yes, earlier. Yes, yeah. Um, and... Um, and your experience of going to, to Hong Kong and spending yes. several years uh, running the Fidelity China's Special Situations Fund um, or the Investment Trust. Yes. What were your findings and has yes. your view of investing in China uh, changed over the last decade? I, I think the four years I ran the China Fund were probably the most interesting four years in the whole, whole of my in business because China is such an amalgam of of things that are, are great and things that are terrible. And it, it made it so interesting. I immediately decided that I wanted to focus on the the private companies, not the big state-owned run companies. And the private companies were where the most um, sort of exciting companies. I had more of a growth style or, or in the sense that I could find a lot of companies that were growing really quite fast where the valuation was, I thought, really attractive and was lower than the comparable company doing the same thing in the West in a, in a developed market. So that excited me. Corporate governance was really key. And, you know, there was a much higher percentage of companies run by people you couldn't trust who were telling you, uh, not telling you the truth in, in, in China. So that, that was a factor to, to bear in mind. Um, you ask, you know, how that has, has changed. <clears throat> At the time, sorry, the other factor was um, China was quite controversial. There were extreme bears of China who thought, particularly because of the debt situation, it was going to blow up short term. I, I, my taught it response was well i don't know what level of debt an economy can you know how high it can go and if it's all internally financed as china's debt was then it it seemed to me yeah it's it's a problem but it's not necessarily a problem that's going to blow up tomorrow i think it's much more difficult today what are what are we on we're we're 12 13 years later because one of, the, one of the things that we couldn't understand, why did the government allow these companies like Alibaba to go into banking and start money funds and completely murder the domestic state-owned enterprises, the big banks? And I think they, you know, it took them a long time to wake up for it. And so the rules were changed uh, adversely, and, 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 and the most extreme example of that was in the education sector, where they, they changed the rules and some of those companies lost 80% of their money overnight. And it seemed to me, you know, if, 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 if they can change the rules and, 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 and they changed the, the environment for the technology companies adversely, you know, that, that was a big change. I think how Xi Jinping 
thinks about what's important to him because he has so much power, I think is, and I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced he's as pro free enterprise as, as predecessors were. And then the final factor is, is the, the geopolitical one between America and China, which, which I, and, and, and obviously Taiwan comes into that. So I think it's, a, it's, it's a much more balanced, uh, investment decision today than it was 12 years ago. Anthony, it's been such fun talking to you this morning. I, I think you know, the best thing I can do is, is, is say that for, for any of you that want to learn more about how Anthony has run money for all these years, the best thing you can do is to buy his book. And it's called Investing Against the Tide. There's, there, there's the book. And it gives you a very much more in-depth analysis of how Anthony has run money for um, nearly three decades. Anthony, thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you soon. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All content on the Algies Investment Podcast is for your general information and use only and is not intended to address your particular requirements. In particular, the content does not constitute any form of advice, recommendation, representation, endorsement or arrangement and is not intended to be relied upon by users in making or refraining from making any specific investment or other decisions. Guests and presenters may have positions in any of the investments discussed.